Amen. Amen. So <clears throat> we had this continued account and the development of Abraham's family, and we saw what just happened to Lot, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and the unfortunate circumstances that are there. And then you come to Genesis 21, verse 1, it says, And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, it took 25 years for this promise to come to pass. But God was faithful to his promise. God never fails in that way. You know, we uh, very often have the unfortunate experience of looking at what we're going through and thinking about, you know, I've prayed for this circumstance, I've desired, I've made my petition to God, and it hasn't transpired. You know, when you look at the life of Abraham, <clears throat> you, know, you, you sometimes look at your own circumstance and think, well, you know, maybe God is waiting for me, you know, to grow up, to mature, to, you know, any number of things, you know, and we try to in that way, it, it's an effort of our flesh, like somehow I'm going to do what is necessary in order for God's blessing cooperation to be, you know, spent upon me. We, you know, we don't even realize uh, the trick we're playing on ourselves. You know, I'll give you sort of a parallel, and maybe it'll be a little clearer as to what I'm saying. The Lord was waiting for Abraham's flesh to die. He was waiting for the circumstance to become so completely impossible that when God performed this promise and this miracle, that nobody gets the credit except for God. Do we remember the New Testament circumstance where they come to Jesus and they say to him, your friend Lazarus is very sick. And what do we read next? So Jesus waited two more days. Right? And it wasn't just, for those of us that have studied that, it wasn't just so that you know Lazarus was going to die, Jesus was going to arrive, he was going to resurrect Lazarus, we can sort of understand that there was an even bigger circumstance behind it in that the Jews had a false teaching that when a person died, uh, it wasn't a miracle if they came back to life within three days. Because according to their false teaching, the spirit of that person would hover over the body looking for an opportunity to re-enter and rejuvenate the person and come back to life. So Jesus specifically waited until four days had passed so that when he performed the miracle, the Jews couldn't just go, oh, well, of course, three days, that makes sense. He, he has his purposes in mind. When we're looking at the life of Abraham and Sarah and we see this take place, nobody gets the credit except for God. Nobody gets any glory in it except for God. This is strictly a miracle. 21 verse 2. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken. Again, you know, verse 1, as he said, as he had spoken, you know, God had spoken to him. His word does not fail. I, you know, prayed this morning 
as we began, about the critics of God's word. So many people that I've talked to over time will say things to me like, oh, you know, the Bible was written by men. It's full of flaws. To which I'll say, show me one. I've, I've never had anyone. I've never had. I'm sure there are people out there that have probably examined it and found things that they think are something that they could present. But I've never had anyone that I put that challenge to come right back and say, well, what about this situation right here? It's, it's a convenient dismissal for most people. They've heard someone say that somewhere along the way, that the word of God is not trustworthy, that it was written by men. They have no idea the miraculous effort that is contained within these pages. It's just something that they want to get rid of. You know, you look around at the miracle. You know, I'm doing these tours uh, for Matt and Evan taking people through Acadia National Park, and they all are talking about the leaves right now. You know, and try to be a serious student about whatever subject I'm involved in, and, you know, I point out to them that that's act the actual color of the leaf. Most people are amazed to hear that. You know, we're, we're living in a miracle all the time we don't understand. When we see the green all through the spring and summer months, that's the chlorophyll in the leaf. You know, the, the leaves changing color. Now you're finally seeing the leaf's true color is what's going on. So much of what people experience day to day, they don't even recognize the miracle that they're experiencing. God's plan at work all around us constantly, let alone to be able to criticize his word, right? God, who's so far above anything else, it would be impossible for us to understand. I mean, you think about this for just a second, you guys. <clears throat> eternity within itself, the concept of eternity, is something our brain can't handle. Just to go back as far as you want to, wherever that might be, and might be different for every one of us, you know, the textbooks keep changing it. You know, Three billion years, nine, 12 billion years ago, the earth began. Go back as far as you want to. You say, what existed prior to that? You know, the, the concept of just, you know, the earth coming into existence. So many people you'll say, oh, Big Bang. Okay, Big Bang. Um, what exploded? Because prior to that, Everyone agrees, and I'm not just talking about you know Christians who believe in the Bible. Everyone agrees there was a time where there was nothing. You know, I'd love the scientific explanation for that from the world. You know, there was nothing, and it all exploded into everything. It's it's foolish. You know, when you begin to discuss with them, what do you mean by that? You know, well then they'll talk about how you know all these. Cosmic particles. Well, that's not nothing. That's something. You know, the evidence says there was nothing, and it, and it suddenly came into existence, which is exactly what the Word of God says. When they examine these things, they're just talking themselves around in a circle about a subject they do not understand. When God says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to perform this, he then does it. When we read God's word and we see the things that are still ahead of us to be fulfilled, God is going to fulfill those things. Not only in the world, you know, the politics, the, the circumstances, in our life. 
God's promises are as true for us as they ever were for Abraham. Verse 3 says, And Abraham called the name of his son who was to be born, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac, which literally means laughter. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him, as God had commanded him. Out of his love for God, he is then obedient to God's commandments. He's following the commandments of the Lord because he's learned that God is trustworthy, that he can love him, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, this is the first of the new faith, the new generation at this point. Okay? A number of things are going to come into discussion in this passage about the law. If we look at the law and we look at creation, you know, the Sabbath is the center of their worship. That's the seventh day, right? So, you know, the week begins and it goes around to the last day of the week and they rest there on the Sabbath. Well, here the child is to be circumcised, or, uh, circumcised on the eighth day. So that's the child of the new week. The new beginning. When we think about Paul and what he has to say about circumcision is not of the flesh, it's of the heart. That, that our, our thought process, our emotions, the seat of our personality is supposed to be circumcised. That, that the appetites, the desires, the thoughts of the flesh are to be removed. That makes us spiritually children of the new day. So if, if we take what the Bible is saying, according to the scripture, we've talked about this many times, creation began 6,000 years ago, according to the Bible. According to the Bible, Jesus is going to rule the world for 1,000 years. That's going to be the Sabbath rest for the earth. At the end of a thousand years, Satan will be released and there'll be a cataclysmic war between everyone that's following Satan and God and all of his followers. Satan will be immediately defeated. God destroys the heavens and the earth at that point and creates a new heaven and a new earth at that point. If we're following what Peter says, that a thousand years is but a day and a day is but a thousand years, then six days have nearly transpired. There is a seventh day, a thousand years being a day. Six thousand years would be six days. The seventh day would be a day of rest, the millennial reign of Christ. And then the eighth day, the new creation begins. We, sitting here today, still having not entered into any of that, right? We're still in that first portion of creation. Our hearts and minds are set forward all the way to that new creation. We're, well, yes, millennial reign, bring it on. That'll be wonderful. But our hearts and minds are actually set on the eternity of dwelling with God. You know, the vastness of God and being in his presence. Here, in, in the very beginning of the foundation of our faith, you know, what becomes Judaism and then later 
Christianity, it starts right out with a child who receives the mark of that covenant in the eighth day. He's a child of the new creation. So before any of it begins, he's already showing us what lies ahead. I find it fascinating the way that God does that. Now in verse 5, it says, Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And this is what I meant by the Lord was waiting until it was absolutely impossible for anyone else to receive the glory from these circumstances. It is God alone that can make a 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife to have a child. God alone that can take your absolutely hopeless circumstances and fulfill his promises in them. I think every one of us has those hopeless circumstances where our faith sort of covers all of this portion over here, but we've got this one area over here that seems to be so crippling that we don't even dare to hope that anything could happen there. Watch in your life. Pay attention. Because I can guarantee you, as long as you still have some strength within you, where you're trying one more little thing, one more method, one more, God is content to sit back and say, go ahead, cripple yourself. When you are physically exhausted and you don't reach up for the effort one more time, when you leave it entirely in his hands, you're going to see things change. You're going to see God's fulfillment take place. You can advance that process by coming to that realization on your own and just continuously forcing it back into God's hand. I'm not going to do this. There's nothing I can do about this. I'm not even going to try in this place. I have to leave this in God's hands. Let him care for it. Let him fulfill these things. It says in verse 6, And Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Initially, she laughed because she did not believe that God could or would or was going to do this. Now she laughs for joy. You can put your bookmark right there in 21 and go to the left back to Genesis chapter 18 with me. Genesis 18 is where this laughter regarding Isaac with Sarah began. Genesis 18, look at verse 10. And when it says, and he, that's the Lord, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, meaning when a woman would be at full term of pregnancy. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door. She's inside the tent. They're speaking outside, outside, which was behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. That 
statement, well advanced in age, elsewhere in the scripture, uh, refers to an individual that's so old that they're completely hunched over. They can't upright themselves anymore. We don't know specifically uh, that that's what it's referring to in this setting, but in other settings, that's exactly what it's referring to. Someone who's physically crippled with their age. You know, they're well advanced in age. Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. She's already gone through menopause. No longer is she ovulating. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And boy, we dwelt on that when we read through 18 quite a bit. Is anything too hard for the Lord? As we cover this subject one more time, are you sitting here right now thinking, I need a different answer than the Lord for my circumstances. Because I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, and nothing seems to be coming from that camp on this subject. If, if that's where your mindset is, then understand what's being said in all of these passages. You can put the point right on whatever you're dealing with in these passages and say, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Because if you start thinking that way, then eventually what it's become is everything is too hard for the Lord. If God can't handle the circumstances that you're currently wrestling with, then that's going to expand and expand until your mind finally comes to the place where you're not reliant upon the Lord for anything. It, it, you know, Doubt is the enemy of faith, you guys. It's the acid that erodes the foundation we stand upon. The Lord is giving us these promises and these examples in history so that we can cling to them ourselves today. So is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a child. But Sarah denied it, the laughter, saying, I did not laugh. For she was afraid, and he said, no, but you did laugh. He's confronting her with the fact that you didn't believe, you laughed. You laughed at this prospect. Here, I want you to understand something else about living in faith, okay? Sarah did not believe, and yet God accomplished it. If any of us come from those circles of Christianity that insist all you've got to do is believe strongly enough and it will happen for you. And then they even go as far as to say, if you've prayed and you're desirous of it and it's not happening, the reason it's not happening is because you don't believe. So you are the one who's crippling your faith in these circumstances. Okay. It isn't about how strongly you believe. It's how strong is the one you believe in? It's the object of your faith. What are you trusting in? That's, that's what you must rely upon, the strength of the Lord. You know, I built towers for the better part of 10 years. And the very first day, I had done some tree work, which, you know, when you're 10, 20, 30, 40 feet off the ground, that's, you know, enough to make you wake up and pay attention. But 
it's a big difference between being 100, 200, 400, 600 feet off the ground. There's a certain paralyzing effect to that type of height that you can't have someone employed building towers that can't move around. So, you know, my boss, uh, very Scott Armstrong, very first thing he did, I went to work with him. He takes me right up to 80 feet first day. Like, let's just go for a hike straight up the tower. Now we're at 80 feet and he has me lock into this harness. I've got a body harness on and, you know, you get this lanyard that locks onto each side and goes around a tower member. He says, okay, now what I want you to do is lean back like this. Put your hands over your head and lean all the way back as far as you can. That really will test your nerves as to whether you're going to be able to function. No hands touching the tower. You're relying upon that belt 100%. If that thing fails, I mean, you're headed to the ground. You know, you think, well, that's kind of like sketchy. Why would he do that? Well, I mean, that's just a test because, you know, two days later, I've got 1,800-pound tower sections coming up to me on a crane that are now going to be above my head, and I've got to reach back with both hands and swing that around like this. I can't hang on to anything. You know, if you're the guy that has to hang on like this, you're not going to be able to get any work done all day long. It's just going to be like a one-handed mechanism. And so... By the time I got to be a foreman, I learned quickly that's the very same thing you do with everybody that comes through the door. You know, their resume looks good. Everything looks right. Just don't even mess around. This is wonderful. Glad you're here. Let's go for a hike. You know, if you get to the point with everybody you're working with where their knees are right up underneath their chin and they're just hanging on for everything they're worth, they're not trusting their equipment. They can't do any work there in the moment. The lanyard's been tested, literally, in its manufacture process, and it is reliable. If you can't trust in that, then you can't function in the job. I mean, it's kind of a lame example, but you get the point. If you can't lean your full weight into your face, then you're paralyzed at least to some point. You're... you're Function as a Christian is being crippled in part by the fact that I can't just let Jesus Christ bear the full load of what I'm dealing with right here. You know, kind of an image of worship, isn't it? As we throw our hands up in the air and just sort of lean into Jesus. You know, people watch Christians worship and they say, what is that all about? You lift your hands above your head. Why, why do you guys do that? It's surrender. Number one, the scripture says to do it. People do it in all kinds of other settings, and they don't even recognize it, right? Their team scores, everybody jumps up, hands go up in the air, you know. Everybody's yelling, right? For many of us, it literally was surrender, just like when we got busted, right? Assume the position, and, you know, you're just like, <laughs> surrender to Jesus Christ. Fine, I give up. I finally give up. I'm just, I've run as long as I can, and I'm all done. Where do you want me to go? Paul said, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. That's where I'm at. My life is surrendered to Jesus Christ. He is the one who has this promise for my life. You did laugh, he says to her. You didn't believe. 
So now I'm going to accomplish it. And you'll just get to experience all of that. 21 verse 8 says, So the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. Now, look, I want to spend a minute just dealing with some commentaries you're going to run into. If you spend any time now or later reading this, there are people that want to make uh, Isaac quite a bit older at this point. And I just want to say it's, it doesn't do anything to change the text. You know, some people just have to be right. You know, they, they've studied so long that their position is the one everyone should submit to. So, you know, you read the commentaries and certain people insist, you know, Isaac is 12 years old at this point. Others will say, no, he's old as 16. And you get all of these opinions flying around. And, you know, then from there, they're also making some very strange applications to how this would affect not only him but you know Abraham and Sarah and then Hagar and Ishmael which we're going to read about here in a minute it's it's really quite simple uh, we don't know where this lies it is very simple to understand that you're talking about breastfeeding and in this culture at this time the maximum age would have been about 3 years old so you know however it is this child is somewhere below three years old is what we're looking at. You know, if, if somebody wants to argue that point and say that weaning means something else, it, it gets really weird. We're talking about a child in an ancient culture who is finally capable of only eating solid food, no longer reliant upon breastfeeding in any way. So that taking place around three years old, it says in verse 9, Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, scoffing. So this is referring to Ishmael, and it specifically is saying that he is mocking Isaac and mocking Isaac's having been weaned and mocking Isaac being celebrated in a feast that's going on. He, he is mocking the whole celebration that is currently Isaac. Yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I'm always very bothered when I see someone of this age, you know, 16 years old or so, treating a child of three years old in a cruel way, emotionally, spiritually, physically, it, it causes a rage to boil up in me. And if you're thinking, oh, I don't know if I'd have that reaction. Anybody in this room that has raised children, if you had a three-year-old and there was a 16-year-old that was abusing your three-year-old child in any way, it's going to invoke a reaction from you. It's probably, you're going to, Probably to everyone watching, you're going to look very non-Christian in the moment. You know what I'm saying? You, you are going to have a parental reaction that is godly and appropriate in that type of setting. You know, I, I was with my daughter when she was about this age, and my daughter was suffering from a profound case of no-napitis, you know, 
and uh, we're in a car, and she is losing her mind in the car. And an adult in the car flipped out on her, a friend of the family, just right in my child's face, screaming. And when I pried her back and dealt with the situation, I made the announcement that what my child needs right now is actually ice cream. So we're going to stop for all of your silliness, and we're going to take, and you know, we made a slathering mess of child, and child passed out in a matter of minutes. This 16-year-old needs the spanking here in the moment. This child of 16 years is the one who's actually being completely inappropriate. Verse 10, here comes the reaction. Therefore she, Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Now, listen, this tells us a number of things that are probably going on. The tension has probably been present all the way up to this point. You usually don't get this type of reaction. Everyone in this room probably remembers when we studied previously how it was uh, Hagar who, once she discovered she was pregnant, had looked contemptuously upon Sarah in that moment. And Sarah had said then, uh, you know, we need to get rid of this girl and had had an argument and discussion and sent her on her way. And the Lord met Hagar there and said, basically, you're doing the wrong thing and you need to go back and submit yourself to your mistress, to Sarah. I, I see within this, I'm reading between the lines. I am making my own summation. It's not recorded here. What I see within this is not only has Sarah, and there's further evidence of it, not only has, excuse me, Hagar dealt with the bitterness of her heart over this situation, but she has, through her mouth and through her conduct, handed that bitterness on to her son. There might not have even been, you know, a sit-down conversation where Hagar said, you know, I really don't like Sarah, and I really don't like Isaac, and I'd really appreciate it if you adopted the same level of hatred that I have for that. That probably never took place. But... My suspicion is, based upon this, that Ishmael was watching. And in watching, he was seeing the attitude and the position of his mother. And he's adopted that position. And now he's behaving in a very similar way. Listen, some of you, it's, it's amazing what I see up here. You know, you get to see one person. I get to look at all these faces. And and there's subtleties. And, and I'm not asking you to be overly self-conscious from now on. 
uh, as I say a thing like this, I watch, and there are some that sort of hang their heads, and there are others that like nod in agreement. Like I, I'm picking up what you're putting down. I, I totally get that. Because we've experienced both things, our bitterness, our anger, our position being transferred to our own children. We've also suffered the brunt of we've dealt with a specific person. I'm not pointing at anybody if I do that. Okay, We've dealt with a specific person, and then we see a similar attitude coming from their children. In life, this is a very natural, very normal thing that goes on. The obvious Christian responsibility is deal with the junk that is in your heart. Don't let this stuff grow and fester. It's treacherous to everything else that is involved. Okay, this young woman could have, this is an incredibly blessed household. This young woman could have stayed right in this household and had a blessed life for the rest of her life. And instead, what she did, in my opinion, is allowed that bitterness to infect her family, which ultimately drove her out of fellowship with the family of God. How does that sound? That is a painful thing to consider. That someone's bitterness, maybe not even our own, has become our bitterness, and now we've undermined our whole circumstance as a result. Here, she's saying, this woman's got to go. Verse 11, the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son, and well it should be. Ishmael is his son in the flesh. It's not his promised son. And honestly, the relationship between Sarah, Hagar, Abraham should never have taken place. In fact, the whole compromise might have actually been because of the faithlessness of Abraham, because he was sent into the land of Canaan and there was a famine on the land and they went to Egypt. God did not tell them to go to Egypt. He told them to go to Canaan. And because of the distrust and the lack of maturity and the lack of faith, they instead went to Egypt, right? And there, lie to the Pharaoh. Everybody remembering the account now? Tell everybody you're my sister. Pharaoh comes to this conclusion, kicks them out, and gives them male and female servants. And the next thing we read, is Hagar, the Egyptian. Hagar is in this household because Abraham did not have the strength of character yet to trust God way back then and remain in the land through the hardship. He looked for an easier route. And it produced terrible things in his life. So now, it's displeasing to him because of the lad, the son, Abraham's sight, because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. 
whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. Yet I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. A very comforting statement for Abraham to receive at this point. He loves Ishmael as his son. He knows it was an act of rebellion. And he knows that it was an act of faithlessness to impregnate Hagar. But now that he's come to this moment, he's hearing from God. You need to listen to your wife and the child's going to be okay. I'm going to bless the child in these circumstances. That takes a lot of faith to trust the Lord in a setting such as that. Genesis chapter 16, verse 2, just one verse, back in that situation, says, So Sarah said to Abraham, See now the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain a child by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. In 16, he listened to the voice of Sarah, and in her faithlessness, in her moment of godlessness, he fell into sin. Now he's being called by the Lord in Genesis chapter 21, verse 12, to listen to the voice of your wife. Men, we are called to be the head of our household. And that means we're going to need to guide the women in our lives. It doesn't mean that we're cruel masters who lord over them at all. Because in one moment we hear that listening to Sarah's voice was a sinful failure. In the next moment when Abraham doesn't want to do the thing that God is asking him to do, which is also the same thing his wife is asking him to do. God is saying, listen to the voice of your wife. She is our helpmeet. They are here to guide us. We need to learn how to have a relationship with the Lord that is so strong that we know when to heed the voice of our wives and when to lead them away from their temptation, knowing when to heed and knowing when to lead. I've shared this before, and men come up to me after the sermon and say, yes, but wives are called to submit to their husbands. They've missed the point altogether, haven't they? They always want to quote Ephesians 5.22 about wives submit to your husbands, and they miss the fact that the very verse just before that, speaking of husbands and wives, Ephesians 5.21 says that we are to be submitting to one another in the fear of God, listening to our wives and knowing when to heed and when to lead. Genesis 21, verse 14, so Abraham rose early in the morning. Hey, pause for just a second. You'll notice it does not say Abraham drug his feet for the next six months. You'll notice it doesn't say 
Abraham let this situation fester and deteriorate for six more years. It says he rose early, which means before his usual time. This is a man who already gets up early in the morning. We've seen that several times. Now he's getting up even earlier. He rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and putting it on her shoulder, he gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. <clears throat> no massive cartload of goods, wares, and provision. No severance package, pay, alimony, nothing. Here's your water. Here's your bread. Be on your way. Listen, <clears throat> I don't want to dig at anybody unnecessarily or deep in any way. But there are situations in life where sometimes men, but more often women, end up being the victims. And I'm not talking about having a false victim mentality. I'm talking about really walking away from the situation and being able to say, I have been taken advantage of. I have been hurt and my children are suffering as a result of it. You want to pay close attention <clears throat> to what unfolds here. Because the Lord is paying close attention. The Lord is watching. Are you saying that Abraham and Sarah have done wrong to Hagar? Well, what do you think Hagar would say if we interviewed her at this point? <clears throat> she didn't ask <coughs> to be part of this family. She didn't ask <coughs> to be involved in the situation Excuse me, with Abraham and bringing Ishmael into the world. <coughs> Her attitude has been poor at times, but I'm not sure at this point if we are measuring things from a worldly point of view that she just deserves to be thrown out <coughs> of a family, of a household with nothing but bread and water. There's at least a lot of these circumstances that would let us understand how this woman could be feeling very used and abused at this point. And especially as you th see things unfold in the following. So, he gave it to her, the boy, to Hagar, sent her away. She departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Again, you don't want to think about wilderness like some American wilderness. This is the desert. This is a very harsh environment that she has wandered out into. And the water skin was used up. That didn't take very long, did it? And she placed the boy under one of the shrubs then she went and sat down across from him at a distance of about a bow shot. That, that's far enough away 
to not even see or hear the child. For she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. I don't want to experience it in any way. That is how desperate the situation has become nearly instantly. We haven't really even covered three sentences since it was put out of the house. Water's gone. Boy's dying. So she sat opposite him and lifted her voice and wept. She is filled with sorrow and bitterness. God heard the voice, note this, of the lad. You would think that that verse might say, God heard the voice of Hagar. The implication is, the boy's praying. Literally, that's not my speculation in the issue. This boy is praying. Where do you suppose he learned that from? Abraham, almost certainly. Abraham has been raising this young boy in the knowledge of the Lord. You guys think about how confusing and difficult this situation is, especially for Hagar. I've been dragged into this situation. I've been impregnated. Now I'm being kicked out of here. And the boy is now dying. And these people call themselves Christians. And how in the world? If this is how Christians are, right? You can pretty much fill in a lot of blanks here as to how she's reacting. The voice of the lad. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? Yes, it's actually as abrasive as it sounds. What's your problem? Right, isn't that always comforting? When you are filled with bitterness, anger, hurt, death, and somebody goes, What's your problem? Don't you just have a warm sensation of love and generosity that floods over you? No, absolutely not. You want to react with harshness. You want to react. You want to know what ails me? Well, let me just tell you. Let's start at the beginning. <clears throat> and we'll just let the venom out in those moments and tell people. About the hurt, the anxiety, the difficulty, the pain, the abuse, the way I've been taken advantage of. We'll let the world know. We're looking for an open ear in those moments. What ails you, Hager? Fear not. For God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. I can guarantee you. Without question, no speculation involved. God was waiting to hear Hagar's voice. God was listening to her voice previously, gave her instructions and told her what to do. We don't see in this passage at all that she raised her voice to God. She raised her voice in bitterness, but she did not inquire of the Lord. The boy is heard of the Lord. The implication is he's calling out to God. 
arise, lift up the lad, hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Again, the same promise that was given to Abraham previously. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. In this situation, her bitterness and sorrow had led her to the place where her son was dying in her presence. And her sons, listen, this is just a little bit of speculation. Her son's repentance, right? Because he was mocking the child of God. He was mocking Isaac. And now he's crying out to God. And God is going to save him. There, there is a, a stark contrast between Hagar and Eshmael right now in this moment. You want the salvation, you want the restoration, you want the life, it requires repentance. Bitterness, sorrow, resentment, anger, if that's what's pouring out of your heart, that's not going to produce life, it's going to produce death. Another stark contrast of the same thing, Peter and Judas. Peter failed, Judas failed. Peter Filled with sorrow is restored by the Lord, right? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. What does Judas do? Hangs himself. Godly sorrow produces repentance. The sorrow of the world produces death. There's no other way around it. I'll make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad. And he grew and dwelt in the wilderness, became an archer, and dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Notice that? From the land of Egypt. She knows all the promises given to Abraham. And where does this woman's heart go? Back to Egypt. Not that Egyptians are any more wicked than Jewish people or Gentiles. But the pagan idolatry of Egypt is going to pollute her heart. The nation that Ishmael becomes is the Arabic people. And they are steeped in Islam now. They're not walking in fellowship with the Lord. Galatians chapter 4. Might want to turn with me. Keep your bookmark there. I got to, you know, again, one of those occasions I got to hurry up. I've only got two hours left. So there are some more things we need to look at. Let me just read this to you really quick. Paul speaking. Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. He who is of the bondwoman was according to the flesh. He of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, 
the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage, that is to the law and to Rome, as Paul is saying this, with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many children, uh, many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free Rome, a type of the world, a symbol of sin. The law, or any form of legalism, can never free us from what oppresses us. It must be that God has created in us that freedom. If you can put up John chapter 8, verse 36... Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. You will not find freedom for yourself and your circumstances through any form of legalism. It doesn't happen. Many people who desperately seek after God's fulfillment in their life, when it doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come and it doesn't come, will sometimes convert over into trying to pursue some form of legalism in order to accomplish it. I'm, I'm going to have you know, the most devoted life of anyone around me. I'm going to do all of these great and wonderful things. I'm going to study more. I'm going to be better. I, I will outshine everyone else, and then God will fulfill these things in my life. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Christ must fulfill these things in your life. How do I get that to happen? Stay on your knees. That's how it happens. You just stay on your knees and you ask God. He's going to be the one that fulfills these things. You have to trust in him. You have to let your voice be like the voice of Abraham, like the voice of Sarah, even like the voice of Ishmael that reaches God's ears. And God answers your prayers. Does that make sense to us all this morning? Let God fulfill his promises in your life. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we are so grateful for the promises of your word. And we do ask that you would help us to trust them. Lord, we have to admit that we are doubtful people. Our hearts are easily swayed. The circumstances of the world around us can be more convincing than the things we've heard from your word. 
Help us to be people of faith. Fill us with the strength and the courage of your Holy Spirit, that we would trust in you, knowing that nothing was too difficult for God. Bless us. Keep us. Watch over us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.